Hello, dear friends. Welcome back to Wednesday and K9360. This is Jill. Uh, thanks for hanging with us the past two weeks and helping us out with uh, making a little money and keeping the programs on the air. We are so grateful for you. Um, grateful that we can continue to be here and do things that you can't do anywhere else, right? Uh, things you can do on community radio that you can't do anywhere else. So again, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Love you guys. All right. Um, we're going to do a little sampling of various things today. Beautiful, beautiful weather this week. Finally cool enough to get outside and start doing some of the activities with dogs that I I myself tend to put off in the summer when we're kind of limited by heat and humidity uh, and either need to train outside early, early in the morning, walk early in the morning, or find air-conditioned locations who will host us and uh, give us some access. But um, as the weather turns colder, the dogs have a little more to give, and they uh, handle the cool a lot better than they handle the heat, and uh, that looks like an opportunity to me. So hopefully that's encouraging to you too, and you guys can get out with your dogs and find stuff to have fun with. Um, just a little teaser. I will talk more about this at the end of the program today and uh, a lot more about it next week. But the Husker Valley cluster of dog shows is coming up. Mark your calendar. If you've never been to a dog show, come out and watch. Uh, best to leave your own dogs at home. No unentered dogs permitted by the... Uh, AKC rules and also it's kind of an insurance thing so we like to be especially respectful of that. If your dog's uh, not entered, they can be kind of disruptive. Dog shows are a little chaotic and so we want to give everybody their best shot. Uh, but here's the highlights. Friday, October 7th, Missouri Valley Boxer Club. So if boxers are your, are your vibe, come on out and watch. Also Friday, October 7th, Greater Omaha Terrier Association, and uh, that's all the terriers that all the terriers that can fit in the space, or who managed to enter uh, that day. Also on Friday, Eastern Nebraska Boston Terrier Club Specialty Show, and the Midlands Shetland Sheepdog Specialty Shows, and the Nebraska Collie Club also hosting a specialty show. So. Boxers, Terriers, Boston Terriers, Shelties, and Collies on Friday, October 7th. On uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we have Cornhusker Kennel Club of Lincoln, all breed dog shows, obedience trials, and rally trials. So you'll get to see um, all the dogs as well as um, some of the performance events. So I again, I'll have some more to say about that coming up as we finish out today, but I wanted to perk up your ears um, so you can come out and hang out with us at the dog show. All right. Latent learning. Latent learning is a thing. I had occasion to talk about it in a class last week um, and was talking to a dog training dog owner and a, a dog 
owner client about the crazy idea that yes, your show dog can participate in multiple events successfully. There's a superstition out there that if you want your dog to do well in the show ring, you better not teach him to sit because then they're going to sit in the ring and then you won't get the best advantage from the judge. Dogs are smart enough to do multiple events and understand what's what and where's where. And I gave this owner examples of sports with overlapping skill that an owner could do different times of year, as we mentioned a minute ago. So that lets you work toward whatever goals you have for the year, right? And sometimes folks are baffled when I say that you can start one sport and switch to another even before you earn the title for the one sport um, just because of changing seasons, right? Like if you if you do field work with your dog, there are training seasons and there are competition seasons and, no, and nobody who does those things um, mixes them up. Dogs don't learn like people do. And so we can switch them out from one activity to another. But something that is operational when we do this is something called latent learning. And latent learning is a process of assimilating different concepts in ways that seem almost subconscious. I almost said unconscious, but I don't think that's the right word. Subconscious. So in dogs, material that you present and repeat several times may not prompt the correct behaviors to get all the cues taught in the moment you're teaching. But over time, the dog starts to get it. I have a young dog I'm teaching to track right now who's she's learning to follow human scent, follow a single human scent to uh, on a path that I set through the field, I guess, and that there's something at the end of that path that she is motivated to find. And she's figuring out pretty quickly what signals what we're about to do. Um, The presence of a harness, the uh, presence of a flag at the beginning of the track, an article that smells like me. And she knows that at the end of that track, there's something she wants to find. And because she's a dog, she uses her nose to find it because that's the most efficient way if you're a dog, right? So I don't think I could sniff my way through the field, but she sure can. So if you observe a trainer who doesn't understand the phenomenon of latent learning, you can see that trainer become frustrated and you can see the dog get stressed out. And as frustration builds, methods change. Sometimes owners get a little bit harsher, which makes the experience for the dog uh, negative or associated with negative things in that environment. So ideally you just quit on a happy note and allow the dog a little time to soak, as Bill Keeler might have said, process the lesson. It's a case of less is more. And there's always some wisdom in leaving a little bit on the table for the dog. Learning can be stressful no matter what method, which is why using methods that reduce stress will generally enhance the dog's ability to learn, particularly when you're first teaching something new. Um, It'll help the dog retain information and it helps them enjoy the training experience overall, which is sometimes something that owners forget about. 
because we want success, right? We want them to do well. So in a practical sense, what are we talking about? How can you use the knowledge of latent learning to help achieve your goals? Um, Here's an example from somebody I worked with a long time ago. She had uh, Labrador Retrievers and her dog Willie was the son of a grand champion. That means a breed champion and a dog, female in this case, who had a master hunter title. So the dog was beautiful and could work in the field. I know, what an idea. And Willie seemed pretty smart like his mom and he loved retreating the bird, retrieving the birds. So we, the owner and I, thought he would be a good prospect to follow in his mother's footsteps. Willie was kind of silly. He was young and that seemed like it might limit his ability to take his lessons seriously. He was pretty silly. And in advanced hunt tests, dog must retrieve multiple marks. Usually two to three of these are thrown birds and birds who are planted and unseen by the dogs, which is called a blind. So blind retrieves require dogs to learn to run in a direction that they've been sent to sit on a whistle command and then take a cast, which is just a hand signal to send the dog in a different direction. Willie learned all the handling concepts well, except sitting to the whistle. And so we worked on that cue and the behavior probably longer than it might usually take to accomplish the lesson. And the owner kind of felt like he just wasn't going to get it, so she gave up. She just set that part of his performance career aside. And to give him a break from the concept that she felt like he just wasn't mastering, she went back to tracking with me and tracking with him as the weather was suitable for the sport. The following spring, she contacted me and said, could we resume some of that field training? And she was honestly shocked the first time she blew the sit whistle for Willie. He turned and sat and looked right at her like, okay, now what? She was completely shocked. Since this experience, she has realized that this has happened before, just not as obviously as it had with Willie. She'd had some experience training field dogs in the past. And what she said to me later was that she realized that training breaks, some of them as short as a day or two or as long as a few months, haven't broken anything. In fact, they've made it better. So now she's playing with this piece of the learning process and finding out it's working to her advantage. It's not a scientific study that we're sharing here by any means. Um, there's relatively few subjects in her experience to make any generalizations, but the breaks really seemed to work. And I do that with my puppies. I take them out, introduce them to tracking, and then we go on to other things for a while. And when we come back to the tracking, they remember most of what we laid down in those early months. So in trying to understand what's happening during these breaks from training, Um, We might look at some of the research on how dogs learn. There are theories out there regarding memory that might be at work here. Uh, Diane Bauman describes in her book, Beyond Basic Dog Training, something called the fifth week plateau. 
And this theory suggests that as dogs are trained, they reach a stage where they become so focused on the cue or the command, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, that they actually kind of seem to forget the intended behavior. Her suggestion is to expect this at around five weeks of training and to train through it patiently. It lasts for very lengths of time and it's not a permanent problem. Pat McConnell calls these behaviors, uh, uh, well, she talks about it relative to like memory storage. She says that dogs, kind of like us, have both short and long-term memory banks. New lessons are in short-term memory bank, but repetitive experiences with the cue stimulate a process of transferring that information into long-term memory bank. During the process of a lesson being transferred from short-term to long-term memory, dogs are momentarily unable to recall the behavior cued by that command. Isn't that crazy? Um, the, The time it takes for this to occur varies among dogs, which means trainers can't assume that in a day or two, everything will be fine and back to normal. Uh, Willie took, tried to walk, took quite a while to recall what the sit whistle meant, while other dogs struggled for a week or two. Uh, we just don't always realize what's happening. And these concepts may explain part of the learning process. They're important for trainers to understand and to enhance our patients if we truly have the multi-purpose dogs. Um, when I when Diane Bauman's book first came out, I experimented with that five-week thing. I took my collie out to teach him an exercise called the broad jump. And I trained it every single day, six days a week. Set him up, taught him how to do it, cued it, rewarded him. I did four reps each day every day, six days a week in the same location. And sure enough, in the fifth week, I took him out there. I set him up, same place. He'd been doing everything brilliantly. I cued him, that is commanded him to take the jump. And he walked through the jump as though he had never, ever seen it before. And I thought, what do you know? There's that learning plateau that momentarily unavailable short-term to long-term whatever explanation pattern we use showed up right there in my own training. I was glad that I had held all my other variables constant, right? I wasn't in a new place. I wasn't um, doing anything differently than I had done over the previous four weeks. And uh, so what I did when the dog didn't understand the exercise, excuse me, could not do it, acted like he'd never seen it before, was it took him all the way back to the beginning. And what had originally taken me four weeks to teach took me approximately five days to reteach or recover. And following from there, the dog made other mistakes on other exercises but he never, ever missed a broad jump ever again. It was just an exercise I didn't have to worry about. So it was an interesting little experiment. I'm glad I took the time um, to see it in action and to discover a little bit about it for myself so that I could watch for it in dogs who are in the hands of my students, right? Being trained by, being trained by students. Um, 
Fascinating stuff. You can go Google it. Latent learning. Latent learning. All right. Shifting gears. Um, In the last month or so, I have been fortunate enough, I think, to have had a couple of contacts from people who are asking about guidance, wisdom, 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 and advice for choosing the right dog for themselves, for their lifestyle, for their goals, and for their family. And um, it's been kind of fun. I, I don't often get opportunities to talk about such things before purchasing has taken place, right? It's usually, what have I done? What did I get myself into? Or this is what the website said, but the dog doesn't look or act anything like what I thought they were going to look and act like. Um, And of course, as you've heard us say here many, many, many times, that's largely a consequence not of which dog you get, but who you get your dog from. Uh, dogs are the product of sexual reproduction. They are not widgets on an assembly line. They don't come out uniformly with all the move, moving parts in exactly the same place as the one that came before them. And one of the wiggliest variables when it comes to genetics and reproduction is temperament, personality. And that's something that a good breeder can identify and select for, but not all of our breeders are good breeders, right? So um, what matters is not what dog you get, but who you get your dog from. That's going to make all the difference in the world. And uh, I went looking in search of some information that I thought would help these folks who had asked about, you know, making a good and ethical and sustainable acquisition. And I thought I might share some of that just a little bit with you here as well. Um, What I pulled up first, and I think this is what we'll look at here in our last few minutes together, is Carol Bouchat, B-E-U-C-H-A-T, Institute for Canine Biology. And she talks about genetics. She's a geneticist. And genetics matter. They matter a lot. And she offers a course, I think you can still do it online. And she said when she was asked for the elevator pitch that she would give for her genetics class, uh, she shared it with her reading audience. And I want to share it with you too. It's a little dense, kind of follows up on some of the stuff we talked about last week. But if you're thinking about getting a dog and you're talking to a breeder for whom this is all too much information, you might want to proceed with caution. So first she says, all the useful genetic variation that your breed will ever have was in the dogs that founded the breed. Genetic diversity is finite. And in every generation, some alleles are lost by chance. That's called genetic drift and also by artificial selection by breeders who select for dogs with the traits they like and remove other dogs from the breeding population if they understand what selection is all about. Because the stud book is closed, genes that are lost cannot be replaced. 
So from the moment a breed is founded and the stud book is closed, loss of genetic diversity over time is inevitable and relentless. You cannot remove a single gene from a population. You must remove an entire dog and all the genes it has. You cannot select for or against a single gene because genes tend to move in groups with other genes. If you select for or against one, you are selecting for or against all of them. Breeding for homozygosity of some traits breeds for homozygosity of all traits. Homozygosity is the kiss of death to the immune system. And as genetic variability decreases, so does the ability of the breeder to improve a breed through selection because selection requires variability. Those allergies that your dog suffers from, that's an autoimmune problem. It may be in no small part the result of homozygosity and a smaller gene pool and a lack of genetic variability. It is the kiss of death. To the immune system. The consequences of inbreeding in all animals are insidious, but obvious if you look. Things like decreased fertility, difficulty whelping smaller litters, higher puppy mortality, puppies that don't thrive, shorter lifespans. Genetically healthy dogs should get pregnant if they're bred. They should have large litters of robust puppies with low pup mortality. Animals that cannot produce viable offspring are removed by natural selection. Number eight, number nine, sorry. Mutations of dominant genes are removed from the population if they reduce fitness. Mutations of recessive alleles have no effect unless they are homozygous. So rare alleles are not removed and every animal has them. Number 10, create a bunch of puppies that have a previously rare mutation and the frequency of that bad allele in the population increases. So the chance of homozygosity increases, right? Did you ask your breeders these questions? Genetic disorders are caused by recessive alleles. They don't suddenly appear in a breed. The defective gene was there all along. Make a zillion copies and you have a disease. Von Willebrand's hip dysplasia, eye problems. Using DNA testing to remove diseased genes will not make dogs healthier. And the breed will continue to lose genes by chance or selection until the gene pool of the breed no longer has the genes necessary to build a healthy dog. At this point, the breed might look beautiful because of selection for type, but it will suffer from the ill effects of genetic impoverishment. Why do I think of German shepherds with each one of these sentences? The only way to improve the health of a breed is to manage the health of the breed's gene pool. The health of individual dogs cannot be improved without improving the genetic health of the population. Population genetics provides the tools for genetic management of populations of animals. Breeders can improve the health of the dogs they breed if they understand and use the tools of population genetics. Right? And she says, this is what her course is all about. So it is not just useful, but imperative, I think, to know what you're up to when you're breeding dogs. Or if you don't know what you're up to when you're breeding, um, consumers can know what they're up to when they're purchasing. Right? 
And what we want is, like we want in other consumer goods, sustainability. Am I supporting with my consumer dollars, with my attention, um, something that is ethical, responsible, and sustainable? Yeah, right? Longevity is genetic. Did you ask the breeder how long her dogs live? Does she know? Because if she's not following up with owners, she can't possibly know. And just pointing to the dogs in her household is too small a sample for her to be able to say, this is how long my dogs live, right? Um, science, the science matters. The science of genetics matters and the genetics of the dog matter. You know, Neil Tyson quipped once, Neil deGrasse Tyson, about how nobody teaches the relationship uh, of how the string of how data becomes fact, becomes knowledge, becomes wisdom. And I think it's important to be able to go backwards through that process too. How is wisdom derived from knowledge? And how is knowledge extrapolated or how does knowledge rest on facts extrapolated from data? And I think somebody who's a professional in various capacities should be able to walk us both directions through that process, right? And I would include dog breeders in that category of professional. Do they keep data on litters they produce? What facts can they derive from that data? How do those facts support their knowledge? And then how does knowledge mingled with experience provide wisdom and I think if you're going to acquire a dog from a breeder you have every right to ask those questions as well especially given that dog as commodity is a living breathing creature and living in your house for 15 years if you're lucky enough to have them that long alright y'all that's it for us this week um, coming next week, more information about the Husker Valley Cluster. It will be at the Lancaster County. No, it's not Lancaster County. Just Lancaster Event Center out on 84th and Holdridge. And it's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, October 7th, 8th, and 9th. So join us next week for an update. And in the meantime... Keep enjoying this lovely fall weather. Our leaves are starting to fall in the backyard. We've got a big tree in our front yard that's the first one to drop all the leaves. And then they blow all over. I'm sure the neighbors love us. Anyway, we do our best. And of course you do too, because here you are listening to KZUM and KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. Thanks, thanks, thanks as always. This is Jill. You've been listening to K9360. Celebration is up next. Don't go anywhere.